the main thing. Am I coming through? Oh, sounds like I am. Great, okay. Um, thank you for having me. My name is Dan. Uh, if we haven't met before, Dan Martin. I'm one of the pastors um, in, uh, at Grace Church Gateshead, in, in Gateshead. So if you know, if you know uh, Bencham, <coughs> the Bencham area of Gateshead near Saltwell Park, um, that's, uh, that's where, our, where our church is. Um, and I hear, I, wrote, I was very delighted to hear um, from Kevin Potts via email uh, that you've appointed a new pastor. Is that right? Who's going to be joining? Who's going to be coming over later in the in the year? Um, called um, Paul Taylor. Is that right? If I remember his name. Great. So and he's from Saint Helena. Saint Helena. Helena. It's coming from there. So I guess you've all kind of had time to get all these jokes about Napoleon and stuff all out of your system. Or it'll um, it'll be fascinating, won't you? I anyway, I look forward to meeting him. Um, the, the, the Lord willing, and that's 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 fantastic. So we've been praying for um, Silksworth from a distance, um, and uh, you know, very very fond memories of getting to know Andrew Crane and so on. So uh, great news. Um, I want to read a passage uh, which many of you may be quite familiar with, uh, Philippians three um, verses seven through to eleven. <clears throat> uh, Philippians three verses seven through to eleven. Um, my my apologies. I, I initially gave. Uh, uh, by mistake, the wrong passage. <laughs> uh, so if you're expecting a passage from Colossians, um, I'm ever so sorry, but it's going to be Philippians. But it will be a, a very similar theme. Um, so I'm going to read this, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Uh, I'll, I'll read this and then I'll say a prayer. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Um, let, me, uh, let, let me say a prayer. Father, I ask that as we look at this part of the Bible, perhaps it's a very familiar part to some of us, uh, perhaps not to others, I ask Lord, that you'd show us wonderful things within it. Pray, Lord, that where we may, uh, particularly where some of us may be um, weary, downcast, discouraged, uh, feeling cold in our hearts even, I pray, merciful Father, that by the power of your Spirit you would refresh us, reinvigorate us. Um, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's find, find my cup of water. Well, I'd like to start by asking you um, about your expectations uh, for the future of your life, and particularly for the future of your Christian life. That's particularly what I have in mind. I, I don't know where you're all at in terms of your own kind of journey. Perhaps some of you are here this evening uh, because you are sort of thinking about Christianity, you maybe wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian. Um, 
but I'm sure it's the case that most, if not all of you, would call yourselves Christians and followers of Jesus. And I don't know how long you've been followers of Jesus for and what your journey in life up to this point has been like. And of course, none of us knows what the future is going to hold. But my question is, imagine yourself maybe 10 years, 20 years, if not more, into the future. What do you expect yourself to be like as a Christian? And I ask that because it seems to me that there are two different kinds of answers that we can give to that question, more or less. One is basically, I would say, that what I would call the default world's answer, which is that as time goes on, you lose zeal. <laughs> That's just how it goes. You become more jaded. You become more cynical. Uh, perhaps you can think of sort of police cop movies from America where, you know, some seasoned cop turns bad because he's just he's been around he's seen he's seen the ugliness of life and there's no way he can believe in anything anymore you know when you've seen enough mess when you've seen enough brokenness there's no hope but to become a cynic and i don't know about you i've been a christian for a while i've been a pastor for a while and i've certainly met met, met christians who it seems like as the t as time has gone on sadly it's not that they would necessarily not call themselves christians but by talking with them, interacting with them, you pick up that they are just really cynical. They see through everything. You don't sort of discern a warmth in their heart for Jesus. It's like the sort of empty shell, like a dead coral reef, something like that, that there used to be life there, but there's no life there anymore. That's one option, isn't it? And I think if you've been a Christian for a while, you'll know what I'm talking about, this sort of tug towards cynicism. If you've been through some storms and hard things and you've seen hard things happen to people, you know this temptation to that, that way of drifting in the Christian life. Pulling back emotionally, not being entirely sure about 100% zeal for King Jesus. Well, what about the other, the other expectations, what I would call the, one, the expectation that we get from the Bible? <laughs> uh, for instance, uh, the Apostle Paul, let's start with him. Perhaps you know his letter to Timothy. We're not looking at that this evening. But to Timothy, as far as we know, is the last letter that he wrote, certainly the last letter that we have in the Bible. He's in prison. He's an older man by this point. He's going to be executed quite soon. And from what we can tell in his letter, everything is falling apart. Everything that he's sort of given his Christian life to. So there's false teaching encroaching on all the churches. We're told, he says things like, no one came to my first defense. Everyone has turned away from me. So we're to picture an older man, an older Christian, seeing his kind of, all that he has sacrificed so much for. The news reaching him in his prison cell is that sort of nothing, nothing much is really coming from this. And yet it's in that letter where Paul says things like, I know whom I have believed, talking about Jesus. When you read Paul's letters, you, you, you don't detect a kind of gradual drift, a gradual cynicism, a gradual jadedness away from love for the Lord Jesus. You detect a kind of, if, if anything, a sort of intensifying, a, a simplifying, a purifying, a sort of distilling of his love and his confidence in Jesus. And then there's things like the parable of the sower and the soil. I'm sure you know that. One of Jesus' most famous parables, isn't it? And what, what, is it that what is it that makes good soil good soil? Is it that it, it, it has one bumper harvest one year <laughs> and after that becomes pretty fruitless? 
No, it's 30, 60, or 100-fold. It's, it's good soil that receives the word of God and keeps on receiving it and keeps on believing it and keeps on and keeps on and keeps on. So it seems to me that when we read the Bible on its own terms, our expectation as followers of Jesus should be that our love for Jesus and our confidence in him increases measure by measure, measure by measure, through the ups and definitely through the downs. So then there's a question. Why then is it that some Christians appear to get more cynical, more kind of distant as time goes on in the Christian life, whereas others uh, don't? Uh, Why is it that some Christians, if you like, travel with endurance and patience and joy, to use a phrase there from the book of Colossians, Whereas for other Christians, it seems to be a case of endurance with gritted teeth and bitterness. What is it that makes the difference? Now, I'm sure you see, if, if, if you've already seen by now, this is a, a, a real life, real time kind of a question, isn't it? Because the Christian life is full of disappointments. Sure, that doesn't come as a surprise. That may not be what we want to tell people. It may not be what we want to tell people when they are sort of when we're urging them to consider Christianity. Perhaps it feels like it would be far easier to present this lovely open door of a life full of blessing and so on. And of course, it is a life full of blessing. But when Jesus says, "If anyone will be my disciple, let him die to himself, take up his cross, and follow me," he is of course talking about a hard road. And part of what is so hard about following Jesus are not just the major trials that may come our way, but the small-scale disappointments which can add up. And very often it's disappointments in relation to people and relationships. A lot of, a lot of the hardest things that happen in the Christian life happen within the context of church and church relationships. We might often find that sort of too difficult to talk about. <clears throat> now, you may well know that it is... It is not hard work which burns us out. It is disappointment which burns us out. Perhaps you've heard that saying. If you've you've ever done a a job which is basically purely physical, you may finish the day's work and be physically very tired. You eat well, you sleep well. And those kinds of jobs don't tend to, quote, burn people out. It's not the hard work. It is the emotional toil which burns us out. It's jobs involving people and the brokenness of people, which just, on, you know, in, in society generally, those are the kinds of roles where people have time off for stress and those kinds of things. So we're, we're wise if we face up to this question, what do, I, what, do I do, what do I do with disappointment? Do I have a kind of theology for disappointment in the Christian life? I'm sorry sorry if if you feel so far this is a rather bleak topic for a Sunday Sunday evening. But we're here on a Sunday night. We've we've, we've come to think Christianly. We haven't just popped out to get milk, have we? I hope hope not. If we're going to think about disappointment, it it obviously relates to the question of um, what, what do I want? What do I want in the Christian life? Because 
by definition, if you aren't getting what you want, you're disappointed. So any kind of disappointment is a way of sort of, if we take the lid off it, we, we get some answers to this question of what is it that I want? Sometimes we can't answer that question easily. It's actually not an easy question to answer. There's things that we think we want, and then there's things that we realize we, we really want, and we know that we really wanted them because we've become so disappointed when we don't have them. Now, the reason why I've uh, pointed us to this passage is because I think this passage, and in particular the later parts of it, I mean, there's, there's sort of so many glorious sermons that could be preached on this, this little passage I've read here, but particularly the last few verses of this passage, I think is where we get Paul stating really clearly what is the ambition of the Christian life. And I don't think this is a case of, oh, that's great for you, Paul. What a, what a great answer you can give. <laughs> I wonder what my answer should be. It's the, this is the answer to the question. I'm not saying it's an easy thing, but in other words, this is to be the normal Christian way. What, what, is the, what is the Christian to want? What do I really want in Christian life and ministry? And I think it's these three parts of verse 10. Do you see there? Number one, I want to know Christ. Number two, and the power of his resurrection. Number three, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Or literally just, and the fellowship of his sufferings. We'll think about them a little bit this evening. Because all I really want to say this evening, although we'll approach it from a few different angles, all I really want to say is that in the Christian life, if our ambition and our hope is basically for anything else other than knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, anything else that we want will ultimately be disappointed. And on a long enough time scale, we'll lose our zeal. But that for Christians who make this their goal, to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, these three things, we'll think about what they mean. If we make that our ambition, we'll find that in whatever circumstances, we are having what we want. We are getting what we want. And in so doing, we are, we are growing in our knowledge and our love of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> now, there's a little word, metabolize, uh, many of you, I, many of us, I guess, will all have heard this word. But what does it mean? I think it's a helpful metaphor in sort of medical or like physiological terms. Metabolism is is a set, is a, is a sort of amazing number of processes that our bodies are running all the time. So, for instance, our our, our, our energy metabolism. Maybe you have to run up a flight of stairs for some reason. Uh, maybe you're you, maybe you're asleep at bed, but. At any point in time, your body has sort of energy requirements and your body is metabolizing things like glucose from the food that we've eaten uh, in, order to, in order to turn that into energy. And the point is there's a process, there's a direction to it. It takes inputs and it gives you an output. So the input is sort of food or glucose and the output is energy. Uh, and it meets the requirements. So if you run up a flight of stairs or run to catch a bus, your energy requirements go up and your body's metabolism adjusts accordingly. If you drink alcohol, then your body has a set of metabolic processes and the liver works to sort of turn the alcohol, the sort of the, which is a toxin, to kind of safely manage it. So your body's got all kinds of metabolic processes. And I think the idea of metabolism is helpful because living life in a broken world, we need to be able to metabolize the hardships. 
and to continue the medical illustration, all kinds of really awful diseases and perhaps uh, illnesses. Indeed, perhaps some of you will have yourselves or, 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 or family members who have sort of metabolic conditions. You know how sort of troublesome it can be when the body doesn't function quite as it should do. If we're not clear about Christian ambition and what it should and shouldn't be, we will be left with metabolic diseases in, in, in our Christian life. So let's think of a made-up example. Uh, let's, let, let, let's imagine a young married couple for the sake of argument. You can imagine your own thought experiment. Let's call them Jack and Jill for the sake of ease. Uh, you know, any any uh, likenesses to anyone here is sort of purely you know, coincidental and imagined. Um, but uh, let's say Jack and Jill have got, have, got, have got two young children and Jack wakes up one morning <clears throat> and um, he kind of wakes up and rubs his back because he's started to have this back pain as well as, this, as, well as pain in various other joints and the doctors aren't quite sure about quite what it is. Uh, and he, 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 it, it's troubling him because he can't play football easily with his son. It's not a huge deal on the scale of Christian suffering, but it's a disappointment. And he feels it as soon as he wakes up. And at the back of mind, he's thinking, I'm only in my mid-30s. What's going to happen Like, if I've got this pain now and the doctors aren't quite sure what's going on? So there's ambiguity in his mind. Uh, he's exhausted because the younger one won't get to sleep and then wakes up in the night and then wakes up early, so he's underslept. He turns over and looks at his wife, and he and his, and he and his wife, Jill, uh, suffered a miscarriage some months ago. And on top of that, uh, his wife's brother, Jill's brother, has got some really, is not a believer, has got some really serious medical, uh, mental health issues, and that's had a knock-on effect on the whole family and some of the, uh, uh, the knock-on behavioral problems and so on. And basically for the past several months, Jill's really struggled to get out of bed in the morning. She's needed to go to bed really early in the evening. She's basically a little bit depressed. And so Jack looks at Jill sleeping uh, in, in the bed next to him and feels uh, doubly disappointed in himself as a husband and as a man because he wishes he could sort of fix things for Jill, but he can't. He wishes he knew what to do, but he doesn't. And so he has sort of physical pain in his body. He's, he's, he's exhausted from a lack of sleep. He doesn't really know how to help and serve his wife. There seem to be unfixable problems all, all, all throughout his life. And this is before he's even got, got, got out of bed. But he does get out of bed and he walks down to the toilet uh, to go to the toilet and brush his teeth and whatever first thing in the day. And, as, and he notices this shower has still got this slow leak. And that reminds him of his father-in-law who whenever he comes to visit always points out all the, all the things he hasn't fixed around the house. And this is, you know, this is before he's even set off for work and so on. Now, am I painting some terrible Christian trial um, not really, but equally, I, 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 uh, does everyone face a morning like that? No. But I don't think what I've just described there is anything particularly like unusual in the Christian life. It may not be stuff that we, we may, not, may not feel large enough to kind of share in a small group for prayer and so on. But what I have just described there, you could pick them out for yourself. Maybe five or six different ways in which uh, Jack is going into the day, kind of carrying a whole set of burdens, which he can't, he, he can't really do away with. He, he can't just click his fingers or download an app which would just fix them. So my question is, how do you metabolize? How do you do the Christian life? And you may have your own set uh, of, of, of things going on. I'm sure you do. Well, 
it's quite clear to, uh, to notice what, what the world's answers would be, isn't it? I mean, it seems to me that it, the, the world does have a set of answers for what, you know, what, what do you do with disappointments and uh, things that you don't want in your life. The, the whole idea of positive well-being. I mean, we've, we've never talked more about it as a culture than we have now. Uh, eat healthy food, get enough sleep, be ruthless on protecting your time off, Avoid toxic people? Great. Maybe Jack flicks on the radio on his, on, on, on his, on his drive into work, whatever it is he does. And maybe he hears you know, someone, being, someone being interviewed on some radio station about giving advice because it's like mental health well-being day or something. And Jack thinks to himself, yeah, great, if only, if, if only I could get a good night's sleep. But that would require me not to be a dad right now. Uh, great, if only I could avoid toxic people, but that would require me not to love my brother-in-law right now, and I'm not going to do that. In other words, love requires you to enter into a way of being in the world which, which often is completely the opposite for the sort of self-centered me and my well-being world, isn't it? So if we're going to be followers of Jesus and lovers of people, we are going to enter into a whole realm of loss, So what is Paul's answer then? What is, what is the Bible's answer for how you metabolize? Because there is an answer, isn't there? there? There is a way of metabolizing all manner of trials. Paul, Paul is our absolute role model for this. And you can read much more about you know, his, his life and hardships elsewhere in the Bible and so on. <clears throat> well, let's, let, let's come back to those, the, uh, the, those, those three things in verses 10 and 11. The context here is that Paul is expanding on the life of righteousness that comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, he's expanding there. Uh, see if you see verse 9, he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, Paul is confident that he is not right with God because of any, uh, sort of any set of, a, of good works, no matter how good a life he thinks he may have lived, no matter how much law, uh, religious law obeying he's done. He's not right because of that. That's not what he's confident before God in. But, the second part of the verse, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And I hope you know this. This is the Christian gospel, is it not? Jesus came and lived the life that we did not and could not live and died on the cross in our place as a swap, as a substitute. What, his, what is mine is his, what is his is mine. If I am trusting in the Lord Jesus, we are, I'm united to him by faith. I'm right with, with God because of Jesus. This is the righteousness that comes by faith. And then he presses on from that. And that's what we're looking at this evening, verse 10 and 11. This is how, I'm going to say, that this is both the goal of the Christian life, this is what do I want as a Christian, but this is also in real time the, the, the method of the Christian life, the, the way of metabolizing for Jack and for Jill and for you and for me and for Paul. And those three things are, I want to know Christ. And note that immediately. Paul's not saying, I want to know about Christ, and there is, a, there, is a <laughs> there is a difference. There is a difference between personally knowing Jesus, having a relationship with him, versus being able to answer completely correctly on a doctrinal exam about the, you know, the person of Christ. I want to know Christ and <clears throat> the power of his resurrection. What is this power? 
before we think about the fellowship of his sufferings. It seems to me that because these verses are quite, perhaps quite familiar, we might sing about them in songs like um, Knowing, uh, Knowing You, uh, All I Once Held Dear, you know that song? It's sort of based on this passage. Because these sound like really Christian words, the power of his resurrection, they sort of roll off the tongue and they're, they're, they're in the midst of this amazing passage. We maybe, this is the kind of phrase we maybe don't slow down over. What does it mean to know the power of his resurrection? This, Paul's talking about, you know, in, in real time, he's not saying, so that in the future I will know the power of the resurrection. He's not saying, you know, I'm looking forward to the day when I receive a new body after death. It's his ambition sort of in the, in the here and now to know the, the present tense, the power of his resurrection. This is the power of living a new life. It is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the same power at work in his people. It is the power to be alive to God in the midst of a present evil age. In the, in, the, in, in the presence of our own sinful nature. So what does it mean to know, the, to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection? Let's go back to our made-up example about, about Jack and his various sets of day-to-day struggles. Well, the power of Jesus' resurrection at life, uh, sorry, at work in the lives of his believers is this power to live a new life, to live according to the new self and not according to the old self. It is, to, it is the power to do what only a Christian can do. And it's, it's an error to, to, to read this word power and think, oh, it must be explosive, it must be impressive. That's like Hollywood power. Bible power is, spiritual power is that which is effective. It may be impressive, but it may well not be impressive. So in a passage which I've already alluded to, I mean, if you're sort of taking notes or interested, you can look, at, look it up later in Colossians 1, verses 10 and, and, uh, 10, to 12, 10, 10 and 11. When Paul's praying for the Colossians, he prays that they'll be strengthened by God's power for endurance and patience with joy. Uh, it's another kind of jumble of Christian words. But if you slow down and think about it, he's saying that if you live a patient Christian life with joy, that is a life that displays the power of God. That's a powerful life. You see, only a Christian can do that. So for Jack, or for you, or for me, to lean wholeheartedly upon God in the midst of things that are breaking my heart, to turn away from sort of me gripping the steering wheel and trust in King Jesus to run my life, to lean on the power of God by his spirit at work in my life to sustain me this very day, this very hour. This is the power of Jesus' resurrection at work in the here and now. Only a Christian living by the power of the resurrection can die to sin and live to God in real time. I wonder if you and I really believe that. I wonder if we're so kind of addicted to the idea of Hollywood power 
that what we think is for Jack to know the power of his resurrection should be like, bam, I say a prayer and everything is, I lay my hands on Jill and she is healed. And bam, I say a prayer on my way into work and suddenly I make more sales than ever before. And everyone's like, wow, what is this amazing power in your life, Jack? And of course, there's nothing wrong. It's absolutely perfectly right to pray for healing. The Lord does heal miraculously. But if he heals miraculously, of course he shows his power. But if he sustains Jack and Jill with joy through long-term hardship, that's his power too. That is the power of Jesus' resurrection at work in the midst of death, creating spiritual life. Now, do you see that if, that's, if that is our ambition, then whatever the circumstances, it can be my goal. I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of his resurrection right now in the here and now. And if there's a disappointment coming my way, I have a way of metabolizing this because I roll my burdens onto King Jesus and I trust in his power at work in my life to enable me to be his person because I'm his. I'm not mine. I don't grip the steering wheel. And I think this, the, the last bit makes it even sort of really crystallizes this. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, or the fellowship, as I've said, of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That second phrase, becoming like him in his death, is a kind of clarifying statement. This is all sort of one thing. The fellowship of, the fellowship of his sufferings being like, becoming like him in his death. In other words, when we suffer, we become like Jesus in his death. as we entrust ourselves to God and his plan in our lives. And the beautiful word here is the word fellowship. Again, another classic Christian word, isn't it? We talk about having a fellowship lunch, these kinds of things. We're fellowshipping with one another. Uh, and I'm sure you know it's a, it's a very important Bible word. There's a reason why Christians are always using the word fellowship, because it crops up all the time in the Bible. You might translate it as community, participation, fellowship, communion. All these words, uh, 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 partnership. There are all different ways of translating the same, the, 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 the same Greek word. I think one of the most helpful uh, places that the word crops up is in, the, is in the Gospel of Luke. Perhaps you know this, Luke chapter 5. Uh, we're told that, that, that uh, Peter... And John had a fishing partnership or a fishing fellowship, or might say a fishing cooperative. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that we're not in competition with each other. It means that I'm supporting you, and when you, when you catch a load of fish, I'm cheering. <laughs> and when my nets are broken, you come and help me fix the nets, and so on. Because we have a fellowship, we have a partnership. What it means is that when Jesus' people suffer and we feel, you know, in that phrase, uh, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, like the very flesh is being pulled off our bones. That there is an especial nearness of Jesus to his people when they suffer. And if you've been a Christian for a while and if you've suffered, you will know this. I hope you know this. That it's not just me being some stiff upper-lipped Brit going through something hard because that is what expected of me. That is my duty for me and my country to go through something hard. It is, it is the nearness of a gentle, tender saviour who himself has suffered 
and we have a fellowship with him in our sufferings. We have a fellowship in his suffering and in his shame, just as we have a fellowship in his glory in the life to come. And so Jack and Jill, you or me, we're able in the midst of the disappointments of, of, of life to recognize there is something of my old self that is being pulled out of me here and it is painful. Uh, my old self is dying as I suffer because me and my agenda for me is being put to death. And this disappointment is revealing to me the, the, the life that I didn't know that I wanted. And the old me is dying. And dying involves suffering, but I am, it is my ambition to become like Jesus in his death and to die. Because that is the Christian call. If anyone will come after me, let him take up his cross. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead, that's what the NIV says, ESV says uh, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from, from the dead. The sense is, is a sense of by any route it takes. That's the sense. So Jack, thinking to himself, this is, this, you know, this is not what I'd thought for myself and for Jill in my mid-30s, is able to read this passage and go, yeah, but by any route the Lord Jesus wants to take me on, that's my route to the resurrection. By any route necessary. Isn't that the Christian posture? Jesus, I'm following you, I'm yours so that by any route necessary, any route you take me on, if I might just know you, if I might know the power of your resurrection in my life in real time, if I might share in your suffering, so that right now, through this particular circumstance that I'm in right now, if that's part of your route to take me into the new creation, then that's great. I wonder what you think about that. I wonder what you think about those three things, about the, the, the ambition of the Christian life. I wonder how you'd answer that question. What, what do I really want in the Christian life? I wonder if you see that if your ambition is for anything other than to know Jesus, to know the power of his resurrection, to know the fellowship of, of, of his sufferings, that any other ambition won't be able to metabolize what the root of the Christian life is. Any other ambition ultimately can disappoint you. But if this is my ambition in the Christian life, then whatever happens, whatever route necessary, I'm going to grow in my knowledge and my love of King Jesus. Perhaps some of you know, just as we draw to a close, uh, perhaps some of you know uh, that this, 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 fa this sort of a uh, famous ancient uh, Greek uh, myth or, or set of myths called the Odyssey. You know, about sort of Homer and the Odyssey. Let's give you the creme de la creme of culture here, hey? Um, and perhaps this is sort of a, it's a you know, big epic poem, and um, it has all kinds of famous little stories in it. And one of the famous stories that sort of trickled its way down uh, is the story of, uh, of, of uh, Odysseus uh, chained to the mast of his, or, 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 or tied to the mast of his boat. 
ring any, bring any bells to anyone here? Um, the story goes that Odysseus and his men had been fighting in the ancient battle uh, against Troy, and then it takes them years and years to get home to their home in sort of in, 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 in Greece. And Odysseus and his men had been kind of wealthy, mighty men, but they've been sort of lost at sea and tossed at sea for years and years and years. And, and the, the whole thing about the Odyssey is about a journey, about them eventually making their way home. And it has, a, it has this famous episode where they're warned that if they go along a, to go along a certain part of the sea, they have to get it just right, because if they, go, if they veer off to one side, they'll, they'll die in a whirlpool, and if they veer off to the other side, they'll crash and drown on, on the rocks. Uh, and there are these sirens, that's where we get the, where we get the word siren from, who, who are these kind of uh, beings that, that lure sailors to their death. They sing a song that's so enticing that sailors leave their course, and they either die in the whirlpools or die on the rocks. That's what the sirens want them to do. So the story goes that because Odysseus is smart, he says to, he, he, he says to his men, I'm going to put wax in your ears, then you won't be able to hear and you won't be tempted. And so he does that. But he's curious. What could it be that these sirens sing that is so enticing that it, that it lures seasoned sailors off to their death? What, what could they possibly say? And so he says to his men, don't put wax in my ears, but instead tie me to the mast. So that, you know, so that even if I want to, you won't hear me. You won't hear me crying out. And it turns out that that's exactly what happens. They sail along. The sirens sing their song, and Odysseus is begging his men, "Untie me, untie me. Let's follow these. Let, let's follow what the uh, what the sirens. Uh, let, let, let's head off." And uh, but his men can't hear him, and they they make it safely through. And it's often this is often a story of kind of cunning about you know future proofing against your own future bad decision making and so on. But what we tend to talk about less, at least certainly, certainly in these days, is, well, go on then, what was it? <laughs> what was it that was, that was so enticing that the sirens sang that lured sailors to the death? And, what, and that when Odysseus hears it, he, he, he changes his own mind and is willing to go off on this precarious way, uh, journey to a whirlpool. What could they possibly say? And it turns out that what it is that they sing to Odysseus and his men is... They sing words which recognize them for the men that they once were. They claim to see in Odysseus and his men, these men of glory and valor, that they long to think themselves as being, and which now, having been away from home for years and years and storm-tossed on the sea and going, from, going as like nobodies traveling across the Mediterranean just trying to find their way home, that to hear a voice in the midst of all that saying, we know who you are, you're these great men. That's what appeals to them so much that sailors would go after that and be lured to their death. Well, I want to suggest that there's something very instructive in that story. <clears throat> that when, we, when you and I are piled high with disappointments, maybe Jack, maybe Jill, maybe you, maybe me, I'm sure Paul himself struggled with this that what we can be profoundly vulnerable to is simply a voice that says to us in the midst of all this, hey, I know who you could really be. It's a voice that appeals to the pride of the old self. 
Do you see how it's the exact opposite to what Paul is saying here? Paul is basically saying, I want, to, I want to die. I want to follow through on my pledge to Christ to take up my cross and die in real time. I want to put the old self to death so that the new self might live in my life. And so, by any means necessary, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So what do I really want in the Christian life and ministry? I think Paul's answer here is clear. It is not easy. As G.K. Chesterton once said, it's not that the Christian life has been tried and found wanting. It's been found hard and therefore not tried. But if our ambition is to know Jesus, to know the power of his resurrection, and to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, then we have a way to metabolize everything that is in our journey in the Christian life. We have an ultimate goal that cannot and will not disappoint us. Let me say a prayer then as we, uh, as, as we close. And uh, to, uh, th- th- this closing prayer, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to uh, read from the book of Colossians. I mentioned we have a, 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 a prayer here. Uh, for us which Paul prayed for the church uh, in, in, uh, in Colossae for this reason since the day we heard about you we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Father, we praise you for this immense gift of life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us a citizenship in heaven. Thank you for the certainty of sins forgiven. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit and for his power at work in us in real time. And pray, Father, give us power from your Spirit uh, so that this ambition might indeed be ours wholeheartedly to follow through on our pledge to follow Jesus, to take up our cross and follow him, to desire to know him, to desire to know the power of his resurrection, the power to live a new life in the midst of the here and now, and to know the fellowship of your sufferings. Give us power to say genuinely from our hearts, by any means necessary, Lord, might I come into your kingdom. Pray particularly for those of us here this evening uh, for whom this is very much a live issue. Perhaps others here know it, perhaps others don't. Thank you that you know our hearts, you know the burdens that we carry, Lord, and we thank you for your mercy and your tenderness towards us. Pray particularly for those of us uh, heavy laden this evening that you would help us to know the power of your resurrection, uh, this power to 
die to ourselves and all of the hopes of this present evil age. Give us power to lean upon you, Lord Jesus, to know your yoke that is easy and light. The power to relinquish control of our lives with joy, trusting that you are good, you are powerful, you are wise, and we are not. You are the worthy king of our lives. Help us, Lord, as we suffer to know you more intimately, to know your heart more clearly. And I pray, Father, for uh, the fellowship here at Siltsworth, uh, ahead of this coming season, and Paul Taylor and his family's arrival. I ask, Lord, your, your blessing and your protection on the church uh, over the months uh, before August. Pray for protection from the evil one here. Pray for wisdom and unity for all the leaders. Pray, Lord, that you'll add to their number those who are being saved. Pray, Lord, that you'll store up many encouragements uh, for the coming seasons. Pray, Lord, that this might be a church which in many, many, many ways displays your power. Not necessarily a power which is explosive, but a power which uh, enables people to live distinctively as Christians. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.